Now, from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, The Axe Files, with your host, David Axelrod. Now, as we head into this holiday season, the issue of terrorism is very much in the forefront of the news, as is the question of how we deal with uh, national security and homeland security um, and still honor our heritage as a, a country, a welcoming country, a diverse country, a country in which we honor religious freedom. Uh, there's nobody better to give us an understanding of what's going on uh, in these troubled regions of the world from which a lot of this uh, threat is uh, emanating than Hussein Haqqani, who was the ambassador from Pakistan to the U.S. Uh, during the period when uh, uh, Osama bin Laden was uh, apprehended and killed, very eventful period. Uh, he was an aide to Benazir Bhutto, uh, who was assassinated uh, by extremists uh, as she campaigned for president in 2007. I sat down with uh, with him as he finished his fellowship uh, here at the Institute of Politics at the University of Chicago, and it was a fascinating talk. Hussein Haqqani, a, a journalist, a diplomat, a, uh, a a big political player in Pakistan at times, and uh, a political exile uh, at others. You've been uh, a, a major observer, participant in Pakistani uh, politics and affairs for three decades. Talk a little about your journey. Um, so actually, I, I came into politics in a very interesting way. I was born poor, and in our neighborhood, what happened was I was about 11 or 12, and the drains all got clogged, and there was nobody doing anything about it. And so this 11, 12-year-old kid was very agitated about it and started sort of looking for people who will help figure out what to do about it. And that's how I discovered that there's something called local government, and there was a guy who actually was our representative, uh, and uh, and I found him, and he belonged to one of the Islamic parties, and he was a very kind man, very nice little accountant. So he helped me solve that problem, and then he kind of recruited me into political work. So as a very young boy, I was. Part this sounds of, like a Chicago story, you know. Yeah, we, well, Karachi Karachi can be like Chicago. If <laughs> if, if, if Chicago had grown from four hundred thousand to four million within a year, huh. Chicago would be Karachi which is where I was born. You know, Karachi was a small city of 400,000 people. And then India got partitioned, and all the refugees ended up in Karachi, and it went from a population of 400,000 in 1947 to a population of 4 million, uh, you know, just like by 1951. So, so, so that's what happened to Karachi. But anyway, so that's how it happened. I got interested in politics. As I grew, I had a, a, a curious mind. So... Um, it, was, it used to be very hot. I used to go to something called the American Library. Americans in those days thought it was valuable to try and recruit friends by just appealing to their reason. So they built these air-conditioned libraries in third-world countries. 
It was the only air-conditioned library I could go to to study. So while I was there, in my spare time, I started browsing through, apart from doing studies for my school, I started browsing through at things, and I remember reading a, a magazine called The National Review, and I found Bill Buckley's writing very interesting. But then I wanted to know what people who do not agree with him say. And so by the time, it was 1968, and I was about, you know, um, in middle school, I was following American politics. And... And we should say you've come full circle because you've yeah. been a fellow at the University of Chicago Institute of Politics. One of your fellow fellows was uh, uh, Rehan Salam, who works at the National absolutely, Review. Absolutely, absolutely. But then the story moves forward. So I'm now, at, by the time I get to college, I'm part of the Islamic students group. But my curiosity keeps me asking questions about is that the best way forward for our country, etc. We've had military dictatorships. So the whole thing was here I was reading all this about working democracies living under a military dictatorship. And so I thought, you know, no, we need we need democracy like others. And to cut a long story short, that got me involved. I, as I started my career as a journalist. Um, and then when we finally had the end of the Zia military regime, uh, we were having elections and a man called Nawaz Sharif, who's currently the Prime Minister of Pakistan, sought me out because I was a journalist who wrote in both languages. I've, there were very few Pakistani journalists who wrote both in Urdu newspapers and in English and who wrote in foreign newspapers as well. I wrote for American papers as early as the early 80s. So he asked me if I would... How did you become a journalist, by the way? So I finished university. And uh, there was a, uh, 1979, the Iranian revolution had happened. And there was a search, at least by some publications, for Muslims who could write in English. And one of these was a new magazine that was being launched from London about Middle Eastern affairs. And they said, you know, and I, I used to write. I used to publish in Pakistani newspapers. And somebody had shown them a couple of pieces, of my samples of my writing. And they thought, it's good. He, he writes well. So I, it was one of those lucky things you know it's my last day at university and I get a letter in the mail saying you know would you like to be to work for this publication and if you would fill out these forms and we'll consider you so for an interview and yes. the interview took place a few days later and I went off to Hong Kong as their correspondent for East huh. Asia and how and how did you come to Sharif's attention so Sharif had been reading my stuff and so I was making a case for Pakistan transi transitioning to democracy and Sharif made the argument, which at that time seemed very plausible. He said to me that Benazir Bhutto has returned from abroad and she is, you know, she, she is basically seen as the opponent of the army. And if the army uh, sort of, if she wins an election overwhelmingly without a civilian alternative, then it will be civilians versus army. So I need to be the civilian alternative to Bhutto. And I thought that was an appealing argument. And, and, because and he felt that he could be a bridge he between... Could, he could be the conservative or moderate conservative... Who could work with the military. Who could work but, with the military yeah, uh -huh. with that. Well, soon after he came to office, he appointed me his special assistant in a very American-style appointment. So I'm doing things for him, etc. But then I realized that, like a lot of people on the right, uh, he kind of lost the focus on building a democracy-first which is what the idea was, and he went into uh, persecuting Bhutto, but more important than that, uh, he got lost on, you know, brandishing nuclear weapons and things like that. And at that point, I kind of broke with him. 
And when I broke with him, he said to me, look, Hussein, and this is how my second career or third career as a journalist, uh, as a diplomat started. He said, look, you and I have been close. I want a, a, a interregnum between your breaking with me publicly and having been my biggest voice. And I propose, I was 32 at that time, I propose that you go to Sri Lanka as ambassador. So it's a nice little sinecure, spend a year or two, and then you can come back and do whatever you like politically. Um, we are done, but I want to do it gracefully. And I thought that was a reasonable option, so I went off to Sri Lanka as ambassador, came back, and this time I came back to run Benazir Bhutto's campaign against Sharif in 1993, which brought her back to office. And then Bhutto and I, of course, have a close association that goes all the way to her dying day. Her assassination. Yep. Um, and you were at, at what point were you, you were actually jailed at one point. What was So, so, so that was the end of Sharif's uh, second, uh, uh, Sharif's first or second, Sharif's second stint as prime minister, and that was in 1999. And uh, you might remember that the Kargil crisis had happened. Pakistan had started a war. Sharif later on claimed that he wasn't part of the plan, that the military had started it without his permission. You must understand Pakistan is very different. To I want to get to that. Countries. Yeah. The Maybe military is the real power. we can demystify it a little bit. Yeah, we will. We will de- we'll come to that. But so, so what happened in 1999 was that uh, the military did this Cargill thing. Sharif was feeling under a lot of pressure. Uh, Bhutto was demanding his resignation because he'd already tested nuclear weapons, but he wasn't delivering at home. And Bhutto had gone into exile. She'd gone to exile in... Benazir Bhutto had gone to Dubai. And she called me up and she asked me to come to Dubai for consultations. And first they barred me from leaving the country which is something they do in Pakistan. They can they get they get a court order saying this person is under suspicion of this, that, or the other, so he can't leave the country till that process is complete. And then they basically, uh, what they did was the intelligence service thought I'm too clever for them in that sense that I might actually be able to slip out. So they kidnapped me. Like I'm driving in the middle of Ralpindi with my brother in a car. And it was, it was very scary at that time, but right now I can laugh about it because they... These goons surrounded the car, came, opened the doors, put both of us brothers in blankets and took us in separate cars. Now, my brother was a colonel in the Pakistani army, so they couldn't keep him. They realized that. And so they let him off several miles away, pretending they didn't know who had taken him. I was taken somewhere. Uh, I remember being taken into a basement, being stripped naked, uh, hung upside down for a little while just to throw me off balance, kicked and uh, hit a few times. And basically they wanted me to make some kind of statement accusing Benazir Bhutto of all, and her husband of all kinds of corruption, etc., which I refused. Uh, I was detained for several days. Uh, then eventually they, put, they uh, implicated me in some of the investigations they said they were doing in Bhutto and her husband's corruption. Um, and I, uh, I, I was moved to a... Uh, facility that was not the regular prison, but it was like for political prisoners, a former British era rest house, rickety rest house converted into a detention facility. I stayed there for about two and a half months, and then the High Court, my lawyers had taken the uh, my, my habeas corpus petition, went all the way, and the High Court said they had to set me free, so I was set free. So this is one of my questions about 
Pakistan is that you have this strange amalgam of institutions. You've got a democracy that functions uh, at some level. You've got a court system. Uh, you've got uh, a very um, uh, strong Islamic influence in your politics. And then you've got this military and intelligence network that are extraordinarily powerful. And it seems like the sway shifts uh, from time to time. What should Americans know about Pakistan? It's important, first of all, to understand. uh, And by the way, this is something I say about diplomacy in general. Diplomacy is always trying to understand the other person at the other country, and then understanding what you want and then finding the intersection. Sometimes Americans generally make this mistake about others. So so, so people assume that Pakistan is a country like any other, uh, meaning it's it has a long history, it's been there, Pakistanis feel they are Pakistanis because they've been Pakistanis for centuries. That's not the case. Pakistan is a country that was created out of British India. Right. As the British are leaving, they see that uh, there's, uh, there's ethnic and religious uh, uh, conflict going on. So they say, okay, the easy way is divide it up and the Muslim part becomes Pakistan and the Hindu majority part remains India. But in the partition, three very interesting facts you must remember. Pakistan got 19% of the population, 17% of the revenue of British India, but 33% of the army. So when you have a, that large an army, here's your problem. Most countries raise an army proportionate to the threat they face. Pakistan already had an army the day it was born. So it had to create a threat that was proportionate to the size of the army. And and, and that's why the army has been so overwhelming. And that threat was India. And that threat at the beginning they chose was India. But then they found that it was very difficult for them to pay for that army with only 17% of the revenue sources of British India and a pretty large population. So that's when Pakistan's leaders came to the Americans with the notion that look at Pakistan's geographic location. Our northernmost reaches enable you to actually fly into the Soviet Union if you need to, or into China, which was a turning communist and by 1949 had become communist. And there was this uh, feeling in America at that time about the America was getting ready for containment and for global uh, uh, sort of effort to, to, to fight communism. And so Pakistan volunteered for that. But the reason for volunteering for that was not that Pakistan wanted to fight communism. They wanted American resources to be able to fight India. And since then, there has been this very complex uh, sort of politics in Pakistan where the military has seized power for a few years. Then it lets politicians come in, but then it still exercises power, which doesn't let the politicians make the big decisions they want to make, including decisions like making peace with India, which is essential for Pakistan's future. And then they keep the economy afloat by getting American assistance, by leveraging their geographic location for whatever America needs at the moment. So during the 60s, it was a U-2 basis, basis from which U-2 flights took place into India, uh, into uh, the Soviet Union. And the Americans felt compelled to give aid for that. Then during the war against the Soviets in Afghanistan, Pakistan was the base for that, for the Reagan administration. And then the Bush administration chose Pakistan as the place where they wanted to operate into Afghanistan from. So so to to leverage uh, your geographic location rather than paying attention to your people or to building a local economy. So economically, Pakistan still has many problems. Uh, just under half of Pakistan's 
a school age going population children between the age of 5 and 15 don't go to school uh pakistan has the sixth largest army in the world but only the 44th largest economy um and pakistan sees itself as so the the army must be uh, a huge employer it's a huge employer it's a huge investor by the way because what they do is they do these huge pension funds that they have invested into industry etc but then because they are so powerful any sector in which the army has a business interest is close to others so if you want to eat conflicts in pakistan you can't find kilogs or husains you have to f- buy army kilo uh, conflicts known as fauji conflicts which in urdu means army and so it's it's interesting so so it, uh, the army's overwhelming role affects everything and for many many years the army actually had common cause with the islamists because the islamists also hate india they hate india they hate israel they hate america they hate russia they hate everything that's not islamic from their point of view and that was leveraged by the army for 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 generating popular support amongst the people you know i want to ask you about that because obviously america is trying to get its arms around uh islam and the islamic world and the way you describe it is pretty sweeping that uh, by definition um uh Muslims uh look uh with suspicion on the west or are you identifying just a faction No I make of- a distinction I okay. make a distinction David I use the term muslim for people like myself mm-hmm. uh somebody who goes to you know mosque once a year or twice a year or on high holidays or on Fridays even uh, or even prays five times a day at home we are all muslim there's 1.4 billion muslims in the world then there are islamists people who think that Islam should define their politics but in doing so they are actually defining Islam themselves very differently so so the Islam of Osama bin Laden is not the Islam of millions of people who go to mosque every day or or and the Islam of Ayad al-Baghdadi is not even the Islam of Osama bin Laden because after all for them Islam is a political ideology so i am one of those who thinks that it might be more convenient if we use two different terms mm-hmm. muslims and islamists as two different ideas two different concepts this is you know uh, obviously you've been following the american political debate you live here now um the the question is rumbling through our politics is what what do we call what do we call the threat or what do we call uh, the people uh, you know who we're trying to wrestle with here um the ter- terrorists um and uh you know there's this ins- insistence on the part of some lot of republicans all republicans that we have to be very firm and radical calling it radical islam and i i think there's been a sensitivity on the part of the president about how we talk about this for fear of inflaming the the vast majority of muslims in the world who uh are not part of this movement um how do you how do you process that whole thing what's your um so i think i think you know one of your supreme court justices said this in a case on pornography that you know i can't define pornography but i know when i see it yes uh, it's a it's it's a case like that i think most sensible people people who are not trying to Uh, sort of rile americans up and cause them to see this all as a war of civilizations and make them angry about muslims in general most such people understand that 
there is a phenomenon that is politically motivated and it's an ideology of hate which emanates from the muslim world but it is not all pervasive in the muslim world if there were 1.4 can you imagine what the world would be like if 1.4 billion people were either terrorists or terrorist sympathizers the world would be very different what we have is a very different world i mean people hear about a muslim who engages in an act of terrorism but do they know that there are people in the us military who are muslim that the man who reported on the times square bomber uh, was himself a muslim the guy who actually noticed this truck and said what is this truck doing here he was a muslim so muslim is a very wide broad community one 1.4 billion uh, with 57 countries where they are in a majority and many countries like india and russia where they are they have large minorities a distinctive phrase needs to be discovered that does not uh, make americans think that they are fighting all muslims and that does not make all muslims think that they are fighting america but i am not one of those who says that we should go to the extent of saying this has nothing to do with islam because it does mm-hmm. because after all this ideology does come out of the bowels of 14 centuries of islamic history these are people who think you know muslims should have been the anointed leaders of the world we were for several centuries and then the west toppled us from that it's a wrong narration of history the truth is muslims became weak through certain internal decisions for example uh, you might know or might not know that for 273 years after the invention of the printing press the muslim leaders did not allow printing presses to be set up in the muslim world right. that's when muslims fell behind in education in learning etc um the, uh, so 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 it happens with nations they rise they fall and very frankly and i am about to say something very controversial what i call islamism or political islamism is essentially the equivalent of making islam great again kind <laughs> of campaign just tell people that you know what all we have to do is bring the others down and then under these dynamic leaders like Osama bin Laden and Ayad al-Baghdadi we will somehow all of us uh, uh, um, uh, Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi we will somehow be able to recreate Islam's old glory so it does have to do with Islam but it is not the mainstream of Islam but do they have cool hats like Donald Trump that's what i want to know do, do you know they uh they Make they, they have they have they have turbans and i don't <laughs> think they have found a good manufacturer who will who will emblazon those turbans with let's make it great again but um so but the islamists as you describe them have been a major influence in pakistani oh absolutely politics they've never won an election by the way they've never won an election yet they are a huge influence and their influence is primarily from rallies from being able to put people in the street from and then they've become increasingly violent they shoot people people must remember that more muslims die from violence by extremist islamists than non-muslims so they've killed pakistani muslims liberal pakistani muslims uh, intellectuals people who argue against their uh, domination and then they've always benefited under dictatorship so for for example we had the ziaul haq dictatorship from 1977 to 1988 and during that period the islamists actually were in government and they were given official positions and that enabled them to implement what they called was islamic law which to many of us would be uh, barbarism in this age so i want to share a story with you uh, fast forward well, there's a lot of ground to cover but uh the, uh 
in 2007, in the summer of 2007, Senator Obama was going to make a speech, I think, to the Council of Foreign Relations in New York. Um, and uh, I had read a piece in the New York Times in which Donald Rumsfeld, who was then the defense secretary, um, said that if uh, if we knew if if we knew where Osama bin Laden was, but he was in Pakistan, we wouldn't um, go after him. And I thought that's absurd. Uh, and I went to our foreign policy guys and our young speechwriter then, a fellow named Ben Rhodes, who's now the deputy national security advisor. And I said, um, we we need to address this. And out of that came this paragraph that you probably are familiar with where Senator Obama said if if we found uh, bin Laden or other high-value al-Qaeda targets in, in Pakistan, if, Pakistan, if the Pakistanis wouldn't do uh, anything about it, we would go in and do it ourselves. Um, this created a great firestorm in Pakistan, but it also turned, it was prophetic because that's what happened. You were the ambassador to the U.S. in 2011 when uh, the bin Laden raid took place in Abbottabad. What was your reaction when you heard that news, and what what was the impact on the relationship between the U.S. and Pakistan? And I want to ask uh, more questions about Pakistan's uh, approach to um, to the Taliban and to um, some of the forces that America is fighting in that region. Well, you know that uh, uh, I came in as ambassador soon after there was a civilian government after Musharraf. And so they appointed me. I was the civilian government's chosen ambassador. And so I saw my function primarily as representing the civilians in Pakistan to the United States and building a relationship that will empower the civilians over the long term to make foreign policy decisions. And the Obama administration, uh, uh, just as the Bush administration towards its last few months, wanted that to happen. Uh, now, at one point, the administration here decided that, you know, the civilians weren't strong enough to make all the final decisions on foreign policy and, and national security, so they had to deal with the military. But they were very skeptical of the Pakistani intelligence service, the ISI, and the military. So relations were already tense between the CIA and the ISI and the U.S. military and the uh, and the Pakistani military. Yet, uh, uh, Admiral Mullen, who was the chairman joint chiefs, engaged uh, regularly with the Pakistani military chief. And the whole plan was we get what we can from Pakistan, but we do what we have to do. And as ambassador, I was accused in Pakistan of being, and you'll notice that I'm choosing my words very carefully, that I was accused in Pakistan of actually helping the Americans bypass the Pakistani intelligence service in uh, facilitating the movement of uh, American officials, especially operatives, looking for bin Laden and letting them operate freely in Pakistan. How an ambassador does that, the argument was that I was issuing visas uh, to Americans who needed to be there for, for, for trying to find bin Laden. This was a major breakthrough from the point of view of the United States. Why? Because the Pakistani intelligence service had in the past not shared intelligence leading to discovery of bin Laden. Now, no one has to completely believe that they were in league with bin Laden or whatever. They just weren't doing it. That was the fact. It's it's noteworthy that he was living in a... Uh, garrison town. A garrison right near, town. Near, right near our military academy. So 
let's not even go into whether they knew they didn't know who knew that's not even worth it the point is from the american point of view yeah. very interesting but from the american point of view no intelligence was being shared by the pakistani side that was actionable so therefore uh, as far as the pakistani civilian leadership is concerned all of them agreed that if the americans wanted to seek that intelligence and that information themselves they had a right to do so they were our allies bin laden was our enemy as much as theirs so the americans had the right to do that so when this happened you might remember that the very next morning pakistan's president wrote an op-ed in the washington post in which he actually welcomed the american decision to do it to go he said it would have been nice if we had been informed and it had been joined you understand done. why they weren't informed oh yeah absolutely i i if they had been informed do you think uh, bin laden would have been there uh i am not certain where he would, would whether he would have been there or not but past experience showed that whenever intelligence was shared uh people did move around uh there are many instances and by the way there was one instance even afterwards because even after the uh, bin laden raid there was an effort made the cia at that time decided that they are going to or the administration decided that uh, uh we are going to try and make a, 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 a try, make an attempt to see if the pakistani intelligence and military will act on american intelligence about something happening in pakistan and they gave us exact details of a factory that was making uh, improvised explosive devices the location precise location and everything was provided and it was provided only to the army chief general kiani so that kiani can find who he trusts to execute the operation it was a test run to find out how intelligence gets leaked or how these things go out and an operation was conducted but it's very interesting the the cameras from predator drones or whatever the satellites were watching this the site just 2 hours before the arrival of the pakistani army there to dismantle the facility somebody arrived on a motorcycle and you can see him this film was shown to me as ambassador this person arrives talks to somebody then everybody starts packing everything up and a truck arrives and everything is loaded on the truck and they leave and so they have already left about 20 minutes before the pakistani military arrives and this was you and this was from the american point of view a very good example of how when they shared the information only at the highest level with the army chief he obviously passed it on to somebody down and etc it was easy to check where it might have leaked from but it did leak so osama bin laden and finding osama bin laden was just too big a deal if something similar had happened then you know you remember in 1998 president bill clinton launched these cruise missile attacks yes well guess what the cruise against missile, bin laden against bin laden and bin laden bin laden's own people in their accounts that they have subsequently written in 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 their various journals magazines that they publish uh, they've said by the grace of god we got a warning just few minutes and the sheikh left just a few minutes early where did they get the warning from if you remember an american general had been sent to pakistan because strobe talbot who was the deputy secretary of state was very worried that uh, the pakistanis might m- uh, mistake the incoming uh, uh, cruise missiles as indian and therefore might launch a nuclear attack on india so pakistan has to be informed and so a general was sent well time so that he could tell the pakistanis only two 
one or two hours before the cruise missiles entered Pakistani airspace. But that was enough. Yeah, minutes before Bin Laden left. Why? Explain why. Why is it that uh, uh, the Al Qaeda leadership had been essentially protected, even as Americans were, as you point out, supplying billions of dollars in aid to Pakistan to help and assist in the the uh, war on terrorism. So I would say that the for that you have to understand what the Pakistani military's mind has been. The Pakistani military doesn't want to just defend Pakistan against India. It actually wants to project Pakistan's power as being equal to India's. How do you do that when a country is six times larger than you in population, 12 times larger than you in the size of economy, 20 times larger than you in uh, its academic and research base, etc., etc.? So for that reason, Pakistan, from the 19, late 1970s, early 80s, thought that the way to do it is subconventional warfare. Subconventional warfare is basically militancy and terrorism. And the, when the Americans used the same methodology against the Soviets with Pakistani assistance in Afghanistan, that was the time when the ISI got built up. Because Americans don't care when they're giving money. I mean, they don't do... They do... They do at one level, but at another level, you know, you're just subcontracting the war against the Soviets to Pakistan. That's what the Reagan administration did. You know, remember Charlie Wilson's war. You know, they're just giving money. Right. And the Pakistanis are running the whole operation. But because their interest is India, so once the Soviets leave, the Pakistanis still want and now, to retain control uh, of Afghanistan. America has, has, has funded has funded the creation of this huge militancy operation and this ability, people who know how to make bombs now, people know how to uh, get uh, put something under a Aimed at the Soviets, that. but and, ultimately and, aimed at Americans. Uh, well, those guys then, at least the Arabs amongst them, like bin Laden, turned it on America. Pakistan, I must say, the Pakistani military didn't want to turn it on America, I don't think, at that time. What they wanted to do was, was to turn it on India. But they wanted to do it with deniability. So what better than having all these mujahideen, as they were called, Mm -hmm. Islamic warriors, stay on wherever they came from, fight India. And if in return they want to fight their own battles in Sudan or some other country, let them. Without realizing that some of these guys wanted to actually take the battle even farther and make it bigger and come to America. And so therefore, in a way... It wasn't intentional on the part of the Pakistani government, uh, military, nor was it intentional on the part of the Americans who, who started it. But basically, the technology for what hit America, the, the primary idea, came actually from your side. In terms of Afghanistan, uh, we've obviously been there now for uh, uh, 13 years. Uh, and uh, a lot of the... Um, orchestration of the Taliban insurgency comes from Pakistan. Absolutely. And I I mean, I don't think I'm disclosing national security because it's been widely brooded about uh, the idea that the Pakistani intelligence service has been selective in uh, its uh, its, uh, and the military in dealing with uh, their presence. Mullah Omar was for years in Pakistan orchestrating attacks within Afghanistan, and to this day, this becomes this is a the, is the, an the on- ill-named Haqqani network. You know, also yes. does the same. Musharraf admit has admitted to it. By the way, now 
he says that when i was president yes we were doing this double game and this also had to do with india basically it is this whole idea that if afghanistan look afghanistan and india have had long historic relations as i keep reminding everybody pakistan is the new kid on the block it's the newly created country and so pakistan feels insecure i can understand feeling insecure but now pakistan has nuclear weapons and i'm a pakistani and i can see it that our crisis now is not that india is going to invade pakistan because they can't we have nuclear weapons now and they they have to be careful about it pakistan's priority pakistan may want to solve the kashmir issue with india you know we feel that it should have been part of our country and it was taken by india but again with the in the presence of nuclear weapons we can talk about it we can't force their hand they can't force us it's time to educate our children it's time to build our capacity it's time to get on with other elements of life but the military and the intelligence service don't think like that the way they think is that afghanistan needs to be under full pakistani control so that in case there is a conventional war with india then pakistan can have what they call strategic depth and so since all the elements in afghanistan that are afghan nationalist they didn't fight the soviets to be dominated by pakistan so therefore most of them do not want pakistani domination and the only group the pakistanis have been able to have a working relationship with is the taliban except that the taliban represent like the 7th or 8th century they don't represent the 21st century so pakistan is in a way as a pakistani i feel pakistan has worked itself into a corner but what really happened here was that after 911 the united states i mean you must remember pakistan was under american sanctions before 911 over its nuclear program mm-hmm. over may and the bush administration thought that they could turn pakistan on a dime that if they promised aid and this is a mistake many american administrations have made and probably might make make again in future they thought if we just give this much money they will change what they want well they didn't what they did was they created a a a a a, a two tier policy helping you in certain things and undermining you in others thereby increasing the cost in lives and money to you that was occurring in afghanistan what happens now in afghanistan uh you know the president obama's uh delayed the exit of uh all of our troops from Afghanistan but we have a a, a reduced force there much uh, reduced i mean almost right. 15% of what it was uh a lot of drone activity although that's been reduced as well what 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 is the future there look afghanistan has a very strong sense of nationhood it's very interesting the state in pakistan is much stronger if you consider the military the government but the sense of nationhood is weaker pakistan's been pakistan's the, the result of the birth of, uh, was born through the division of india then it got divided between bangladesh and pakistan so pakistan lives under the fear of further division subdivision afghanistan has a much stronger sense of being together because they've been together for for, for longer yet their government was always weak they never had a strong military for the first time they have a substantial military but you must remember david that a second lieutenant takes about 38 to 40 years to become a four star general so that's why you are needed there to keep, give that 
that cushion to the Amer- uh, to the Afghan army to develop that officer's cadre that can think big. You've been there. So anybody you recruited 10 years ago as a second lieutenant will make a good colonel. But if you accelerate his promotion and give him the title of general, doesn't mean he has the experience to be a general. So I think that the Afghan government can hold on to Afghanistan with the help of the Afghan forces if the Americans can continue to give it some, uh, shall we say, protection and support, not be deeply involved. A tough sell for the it, is, it is a tough sell, but here's the problem. I mean, this is something I, since since you you know American politics far more than I do, but Americans need to sometimes understand that thing, things can take a little longer. I often joke that Americans are good at many things; they aren't good at two things. One is history. America is the only country where, when you're dismissive about someone, you say, "David, he's history." That's a dismissive <laughs> way of saying, which basically means history is irrelevant. And the second thing Americans don't do well is patience. But very frankly, lower cost operation, maybe maybe with some other nations pitching in to, towards the cost, the Middle Eastern countries who also want Afghanistan not to have the Taliban win, pitching in something money-wise. Keep your f- basic level of troops, advisors that enable the Afghan army to become sufficiently strong to resist. I, if they can I, I just want to say a word on behalf of the American people. Uh, uh, the investment has been pretty vast already in terms of both money and lives. Oh, so, absolutely. And, and the and the um, and the impact on it's not always clear what the impact on the American people is. Obviously, there's a concern about uh, Afghanistan becoming a staging area once again for terrorist acts against uh, the U.S. But there are other <laughs> areas now with ISIS yeah. and so on. That. Well, you will have to deal with those areas as well, the staging areas. But the the, the real uh, answer to all of this is stronger gov- local governments. Gov- I mean, local governments as in national governments, strong governments that can withstand the onslaught of the jihadis themselves. But then they have to be governments that are committed to withstanding the onslaught of the jihadis. I think the Afghan government is committed to not letting the Taliban come back to power. The problem then lies in Pakistan, and there you then have to find the right mix of pressure points for Pakistan to change its policy. And do you think that's possible, to get them to change Again, their policy? it can happen, but it'll need a little How bit of How much is there a concern that the uh, Islamist forces within Pakistan would object to uh, a full commitment to... Yes, uh, the Islamist forces have con- continuously put pressure, but the great advantage there is that they are—they have repeatedly failed to win elections. And mm-hmm. so, if Pakistan has a democratic process, the Islamists are marginalized because they are not in parliament. What needs to be done is to strengthen Pakistani democracy. Now, Pakistan's democracy, of course, suffers from the same kind of problems that many other democracies do. People accuse uh, elected officials of engaging in corruption. The patronage politics basically it sort of debilitates. Uh, the economy, etc., etc. Those problems are very much there. And the army feeds that. Mm-hmm. It, it keeps telling the people, oh, the civilian politicians, incompetent, incompetent, incompetent. But right now, every Pakistani major political party wants three things. Peace with India, peace on Afghanistan's front, and end to support for uh, militancy and jihadis all through. And I think... Either one of the two major political parties leading a civilian government that is truly effective and that is able to control Pakistan's own military 
instead of being at war with the military constantly can you imagine a situation where the president of the united states is constantly living under the dread of the chairman joint chiefs walking in and saying mr president Listen, i've taken this is your one of the, over. this is one of the great strengths of our country that through all of our history civilian control has Absolutely. prevailed without question and so civilian control in afghanistan civilian control in pakistan may actually be your best bet against the jihadis let me ask you two things before where history uh the first is um uh this issue of nuclear weapons in pakistan you talk to a lot of uh very very uh smart thinkers in this area and they say what what do you think the greatest concern in the world is and often they'll say the nuclear weapons in pakistan falling into the hands of uh of extremists and becoming uh you know weapons in the in in acts of terrorism what uh how how real is that threat and what kind of what kind of assurance should people feel or any that 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 is not a likely occurrence well fragile countries should not have nuclear weapons and so the problem is pakistan's fragility that raises this prospect and very frankly all those people and i write about it in my book in great detail the book i've written on us pakistan relations that there were americans in the 80s who thought it's not such a big deal if pakistan gets nuclear weapons and now they those guys must really be you know tossing and turning in their beds every night oh god what have we done the solution to this fear is a stable government in pakistan that is civilian that controls the nuclear program and has effective security and safety mechanisms and responds to some international regime of control pakistan's program is totally uncontrolled totally inter- outside international uh, restrictions or management as so you as agree that this is a major concern i think the concern is legitimate but the concern is not the way people see people think you know some religious fundamentalist jihadi group is going to steal pakistan's nuclear weapons and then bring them to some other country as a kind of like in the movies they show mm-hmm. these things i don't think nuclear weapons work that way i think pakistan's nuclear weapons are controlled by pakistan's military can there be elements within the military and the pakistani military has been infiltrated by jihadis i hope you know that yes. many important bases have been attacked by people from who have been who have had great intelligence and information from within the bases so could that happen absolutely and therefore a stronger pakistan that is willing that, that sees itself more as you know not in a permanent state of war but 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 basically that realizes that we built nuclear weapons so that we will not be overrun by a larger conventional indian force now we need to calm down talk to india and find some peace at home and abroad if that do you think that would be an avenue to uh to uh deproliferation to 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 reducing the number of nuclear weapons i think that there can there there might not be deproliferation in the immediate future but i think there can be a kind of a freeze on how many nuclear weapons uh these new countries can have new new nuclear countries like pakistan and india and secondly it would be disastrous if pakistan's battlefield nukes really emerge as the new threat down the road because there some colonel or major will be controlling the the deployment of nuclear weapons and those are much easier to fall into wrong hands um you uh, i i be remiss if i didn't let you go before i asked you about 
ISIS and and uh, where we are today. You've you've said that Al Qaeda led to the birth of ISIS, and that uh, attempts to destroy ISIS will lead to terrorism 3.0. What do you mean by that? What I mean by that is that there is a tendency here to think that you know those who attack us are the ones that we need to deal with, without thinking beyond that and think about those who will be attacking you down the road. All of this represents a trajectory, an ideological trajectory. These are people who came out of the war against the Soviet Union feeling very empowered. They had leveraged connections with the United States to push the Soviet Union out of a Muslim country. Now they think that they can leverage global affairs and situation in a manner in which they can push and topple America from its perch of being the world's leader. So they're not going to stop. Uh, what is today ISIS used to be Al-Qaeda in Iraq at one point. And once, uh, so, so, so your strategy should not be limited to just tracking down individuals, just as you did with Al-Qaeda. Look, you've killed more top Al-Qaeda leaders uh, who were top Al-Qaeda leaders at the time of the 9-11 attacks uh, 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 than anybody could have imagined. But that hasn't ended the problem because the problem is self-regenerating. And so if Al-Qaeda was terrorism 1.0 and ISIS is terrorism 2.0, do not believe for a moment that there will not be a terrorism 3.0. And for that, you need a more comprehensive, holistic strategy towards the region, which actually tries to marginalize radical Islamists uh, and these extremist groups, make sure that they are not able to continue their financing schemes. For example, ISIS sells oil. Now, it shouldn't be that difficult. I mean, oil is not something that can be smuggled because it goes in anybody's pocket. Oil, oil is transported in, tra in tankers. There's no way that you can fight uh, uh, ISIS without depriving them of their finances. So, aren't some of the so, issues here uh, related to larger Sunni-Shia questions in the region, Iran and Saudi Arabia and so on? Well, Iran and Saudi Arabia, yes, but Iran and Saudi Arabia should not be seen as a... The world's largest Sunni state is Indonesia, and they're not in this conflict. So it's not so much about Sunni-Shia. Iran uses the Shia card as its identity. Saudis use the Sunni card as their identity. But it's not like a overwhelming Sunni-Shia conflict all over the world. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, the Shias constitute only 15% of the world's Muslims. And, uh, and, and, and those Shias who are not involved in this conflict directly... Uh, are usually very westernized Shias, Lebanon Shias, Pakistan Shias, India Shias, some of the uh, most famous Bollywood actors and actresses are Shia Muslims. So it shouldn't be simplified that way. You have to understand uh, the details. And here I would make a comment directly addressed to Americans who take an interest in politics and world affairs. The If you look at history... The United States has done very well in international uh, conflicts where America understood the issues and understood the societies where it was going. So, for example, after the Second World War, you understood Germany and you understood you had to denazify the place. But Germany, should Germans are a proud nation, they should be able to succeed as a nation. You did well in keeping Italy from going communist. You dealt well with East European nations. Uh, what would succeed? In, where have your 
uh, you did well in Korea, where you understood what the Korean elite in South Korea wanted. They wanted economic prosperity. You gave it, helped them build it. Where have you gone wrong? You went wrong in South Vietnam, for example. Your assumptions about Vietnamese were wrong. You assumed that North Vietnam wants to spread communism over Southeast Asia. So you were trying to fight a ghost war. That's not what was happening. North Korea only wanted to re- uh, North uh, Vietnam only wanted to reunite with South Vietnam, but you were fighting uh, false pretenses, and that dragged you in, cost you a lot of lives, for, and you left. And North Vietnam succeeded in its objective. So understand the objectives of all the actors. Saudi Arabia's objective is essentially to survive as a state. And they are afraid the Iranians are out to get them. That is the way to keep the Saudis out of it is by checking the power of Iran and its influence. Don't think of it as a Shia-Sunni conflict, but as two powers trying to assert themselves and spread their wings in the region with some others like Turkey trying to actually leverage themselves as well. That region needs to have some kind of an understanding that there can be more than one important nation and that not everyone doesn't need to pull the other down or to create and generate conflicts through which they can remain significant and important for the West. And how important, uh, last, uh, my last inquiry here, how important is it to... Um, find some sort of political solution in Syria to uh, uh, to resolve uh, that question and, and really focus on ISIS? I think that uh, a political solution for Syria has to be found, but it would be difficult unless and until... You, there, there are just too many moving parts. There are too many actors, too many uh, factors, and you have to talk to each one and try and find a solution to every element. You may not be able to please everybody, but you can do a kind of a transition in Syria that was eventually effected in Iraq and Afghanistan. But for that, you will have to get Assad to accept that he will, he will, he will step down. And you have to make sure that the regional actors do not try to use ISIS or al-Nusra, which is the al-Qaeda in that region, as their, as their uh, f- uh, force on ground to bring Assad down. I could uh, go on for hours here, uh, but uh, I so appreciate your time, both at the Institute of Politics and, and here today. You, you come from a fascinating place and armed with great knowledge. So it really has pleasure been a pleasure being you. at the Institute of Politics, and I enjoyed every day that I was here in Chicago. Thank you for that. Thank you. Thank you for listening to The Axe Files. For more podcasts like this, subscribe to The Axe Files on iTunes. And for more programming from the University of Chicago Institute of Politics, visit politics.uchicago.edu. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com.